Section 4 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 8, Part 3, Le Marquise de Gange by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4 The following days passed without any apparent increase in her illness. The fever by which she was consumed, rather enhancing her beauties, and imparting to her voice and gestures a vivacity which they had never had before. Thus everybody had begun to recover hope, except herself, who, feeling better than anyone else what was her true condition, never for a moment allowed herself any illusion, and keeping her son, who was seven years old, constantly beside her bed, bade him again and again look well at her, so that, young as he was, he might remember her all his life, and never forget her in his prayers. The poor child would burst into tears, and promise not only to remember her, but also to avenge her when he was a man. At these words the Marquise gently reproved him, telling him that all vengeance belonged to the king and to God, and that all cares of the kind must be left to those two great rulers of heaven and of earth. On the 3rd of June, Monsieur Catalan, a councillor, appointed as a commissioner by the Parliament of Toulouse, arrived at Gange, together with all the officials required by his commission, but he could not see the marquise that night for she had dozed for some hours and this sleep had left a sort of torpor upon her mind which might have impaired the lucidity of her depositions the next morning without asking anybody's opinion monsieur catalan repaired to the house of monsieur desprat and in spite of some slight resistance on the part of those who were in charge of her made his way to the presence of the marquise the dying woman received him with an admirable presence of mind, that made Monsieur Catalan think there had been an intention the night before to prevent any meeting between him and the person whom he was sent to interrogate. At first, the Marquise would relate nothing that had passed, saying that she could not at the same time accuse and forgive. But Monsieur Catalan brought her to see that justice required truth from her before all things, since in default of exact information the law might go astray and strike the innocent instead of the guilty this last argument decided the marquise and during the hour and a half that he spent alone with her she told him all the details of this horrible occurrence on the morrow monsieur catalan was to see her again but on the morrow the marquise was in truth much worse he assured himself of this by his own eyes and as he knew almost all that he wished to know did not insist further for fear of fatiguing her. Indeed, from that day forward such atrocious sufferings laid hold upon the Marquise, that notwithstanding the firmness which she had always shown, and which she tried to maintain to the end, she could not prevent herself from uttering screams mingled with prayers. In this manner she spent the whole day of the fourth and part of the fifth. At last, on that day, which was a Sunday, towards four o'clock in the afternoon, she expired the body was immediately opened and the physicians attested that the marquise had died solely from the power of the poison none of the seven sword cuts which she had received being mortal they found the stomach and bowels burned and the brain blackened however in spite of that infernal draught which says the official report would have killed a lioness in a few hours the marquise struggled for nineteen days so much adds an account from which we have borrowed some of these details so much did nature lovingly defend the beautiful body that she had taken so much trouble to make
Monsieur Catalan, the very moment he was informed of the Marquise's death, having with him twelve guards belonging to the governor, ten archers, and a poqueton, dispatched them to the Marquis's castle with orders to seize his person, that of the priest, and those of all the servants except the groom who had assisted the Marquise in her flight. The officer in command of this little squad found the Marquis walking up and down, melancholy and greatly disturbed, in the large hall of the castle, and when he signified to him the order of which he was the bearer, the Marquis, without making any resistance, and as though prepared for what was happening to him, replied that he was ready to obey, and that, moreover, he had always intended to go before the Parliament to accuse the murderers of his wife. He was asked for the key of his cabinet, which he gave up, and the order was given to conduct him, with the other persons accused, to the prisons of Montpellier. As soon as the Marquis came into that town, the report of his arrival spread with incredible rapidity from street to street. Then, as it was dark, lights came to all the windows, and people corning out with torches formed a torchlight procession, by means of which everybody could see him. He, like the priest, was mounted on a sorry hired horse, and entirely surrounded by archers, to whom no doubt he owed his life on this occasion, for the indignation against him was so great that every one was egging on his neighbors to tear him limb from limb, which would certainly have come to pass had he not been so carefully defended and guarded. Immediately upon receiving news of her daughter's death, Madame Rossin took possession of all her property, and making herself a party to the case, declared that she would never desist from her suit until her daughter's death was avenged. Monsieur Catalan began the examination at once, and the first interrogation to which he submitted the Marquis lasted eleven hours. Then, soon afterwards, he and the other persons accused were conveyed from the prisons of Montpellier to those of Toulouse. A crushing memorial by Madame de Rossan followed them, in which she demonstrated with absolute clearness that the Marquis had participated in the crime of his two brothers, if not in act, in thought, desire, and intention. The Marquis's defense was very simple. It was his misfortune to have had two villains for brothers, who had made attempts first upon the honor and then upon the life of a wife whom he loved tenderly. They had destroyed her by a most atrocious death, and to crown his evil fortune, he, the innocent, was accused of having had a hand in that death. And indeed, the examinations in the trial did not succeed in bringing any evidence against the Marquis beyond moral presumptions, which, it appears, were insufficient to induce his judges to award a sentence of death. A verdict was consequently given upon the 21st of August, 1667, which sentenced the abbé and the chevalier de Gange to be broken alive on the wheel, the marquis de Gange to perpetual banishment from the kingdom, his property to be confiscated to the king, and himself to lose his nobility and to become incapable of succeeding to the property of his children. As for the priest Perrette, he was sentenced to the galleys for life after having previously been degraded from his clerical orders by the ecclesiastical authorities. This sentence made a great stir, as the murder had done, and gave rise in that period when extenuating circumstances had not been invented to long and angry discussions. Indeed, the Marquis either was guilty of complicity or was not. If he was not, the punishment was too cruel. If he was, 
the sentence was too light. Such was the opinion of Louis the Fourteenth, who remembered the beauty of the Marquis de Ganges, for some time afterwards, when he was believed to have forgotten this unhappy affair, and when he was asked to pardon the Marquis de la Dutz, who was accused of having poisoned his wife, the king answered, There is no need for a pardon, since he belongs to the Parliament of Toulouse, and the Marquis de Ganges did very well without one. It may easily be supposed that this melancholy event did not pass without inciting the wits of the day to write a vast number of verses in Bout's rhymes about the catastrophe by which one of the most beautiful women of the country was carried off. Readers who have a taste for that sort of literature are referred to the journals and memoirs of the times. Now, as our readers, if they have taken any interest at all in the terrible tale just narrated, will certainly ask, what became of the murderers? We will proceed to follow their course until the moment when they disappeared, some into the night of death, some into the darkness of oblivion. The priest Peretta was the first to pay his debt to heaven. He died at the oar on the way from Toulouse to Brest. The Chevalier withdrew to Venice, took service in the army of the most serene republic, then at war with Turkey, and was sent to Candia which the Mussulmans had been besieging for twenty years. He had scarcely arrived there when, as he was walking on the ramparts of the town with two other officers, a shell burst at their feet, and a fragment of it killed the Chevalier without so much as touching his companions, so that the event was regarded as a direct act of providence. As for the abbe, his story is longer and stranger. He parted from the Chevalier in the neighborhood of Genoa, and crossing the whole of Piedmont, part of Switzerland, and a corner of Germany, entered Holland under the name of La Martelliere. After many hesitations as to the place where he would settle, he finally retired to Vianne, of which the Count of Leap was at the time sovereign. There he made the acquaintance of a gentleman who presented him to the Count as a French religious refugee. The Count, even in this first conversation, found that the foreigner who had come to seek safety in his dominions possessed not only great intelligence, but a very solid sort of intelligence, and seeing that the Frenchman was conversant with letters and with learning, proposed that he should undertake the education of his son, who at that time was nine years old. Such a proposal was a stroke of fortune for the Abbé de Ganges, and he did not dream of refusing it. The Abbé de Ganges was one of those men who have great mastery over themselves. From the moment when he saw that his interest, nay, the very safety of his life required it, he concealed with extreme care whatever bad passions existed within him, and only allowed his good qualities to appear. He was a tutor who supervised the heart as sharply as the mind, and succeeded in making of his pupil a prince so accomplished in both respects that the Count of Leap making use of such wisdom and such knowledge, began to consult the tutor upon all matters of state, so that in course of time the so-called La Martelliere, without holding any public office, had become the soul of the little principality. The countess had a young relation living with her, who, though without fortune, was of a great family, and for whom the countess had a deep affection. It did not escape her notice that her son's tutor had inspired this poor young girl with warmer feelings than became her high station, and that the false La Martelliere, emboldened by his own growing credit, had done all he could to arouse and keep up these feelings. 
the countess sent for her cousin and having drawn from her a confession of her love said that she herself had indeed a great regard for her son's governor whom she and her husband intended to reward with pensions and with posts for the services he had rendered to their family and to the state but that it was too lofty an ambition for a man whose name was la martelliere and who had no relations nor family that could be owned to aspire to the hand of a girl who was related to a royal house and that though she did not require that the man who married her cousin should be a bourbon a montmorency or a rohan she did at least desire that he should be somebody though it were but a gentleman of gascony or poitou the countess of leap's young kinswoman went and repeated this answer word for word to her lover expecting him to be overwhelmed by it but on the contrary he replied that if his birth was the only obstacle that opposed their union there might be means to remove it in fact the abbe having spent eight years at the prince's court amid the strongest testimonies of confidence and esteem thought himself sure enough of the prince's goodwill to venture upon the avowal of his real name he therefore asked an audience of the countess who immediately granted it bowing to her respectfully he said madame i had flattered myself that your highness honoured me with your esteem and yet you now oppose my happiness your highness's relative is willing to accept me as a husband and the prince your son authorizes my wishes and pardons my boldness what have i done to you madame that you alone should be against me and with what can you reproach me during the eight years that i have had the honor of serving your highness i have nothing to reproach you with monsieur replied the countess but i do not wish to incur reproach on my own part by permitting such a marriage i thought you too sensible and reasonable a man to need reminding that while you confined yourself to suitable requests and moderate ambitions you had reason to be pleased with our gratitude do you ask that your salary shall be doubled the thing is easy do you desire important posts they shall be given you but do not sir so far forget yourself as to aspire to an alliance that you cannot flatter yourself with a hope of ever attaining but madame returned the petitioner who told you that my birth was so obscure as to debar me from all hope of obtaining your consent why you yourself monsieur i think answered the countess in astonishment or if you did not say so your name said so for you and if that name is not mine madame said the abbe growing bolder if unfortunate terrible fatal circumstances have compelled me to take that name in order to hide another that was too unhappily famous would your highness then be so unjust as not to change your mind monsieur replied the countess you have said too much now not to go on to the end who are you tell me and if as you give me to understand you are of good birth i swear to you that want of fortune shall not stand in the way alas madame cried the abbe throwing himself at her feet my name i am sure is but too familiar to your highness and i would willingly at this moment give half my blood that you had never heard it uttered 
but you have said it madame have gone too far to recede well then i am that unhappy abbe de ganges whose crimes are known and of whom i have more than once heard you speak the abbe de ganges cried the countess in horror the abbe de ganges you are that execrable abbe de ganges whose very name makes one shudder and to you to a man thus infamous we have entrusted the education of our only son oh i hope for all our sakes monsieur that you are speaking falsely for if you were speaking the truth i think i should have you arrested this very instant and taken back to france to undergo your punishment the best thing you can do if what you have said to me is true is instantly to leave not only the castle but the town and the principality it will be torment enough for the rest of my life whenever i think that i have spent seven years under the same roof with you the abbe would have replied but the countess raised her voice so much that the young prince who had been won over to his tutor's interests and who was listening at his mother's door judged that his protege's business was taking an unfavorable turn and went in to try and put things right he found his mother so much alarmed that she drew him into her by an instinctive movement as though to put herself under his protection and beg and pray as he might he could only obtain permission for his tutor to go away undisturbed to any country of the world that he might prefer but with an express prohibition of ever again entering the presence of the count or the countess of leap the abbe de ganges withdrew to amsterdam where he became a teacher of languages and where his lady love soon after came to him and married him his pupil whom his parents could not induce even when they told him the real name of the false la martelliere to share their horror of him gave him assistance as long as he needed it and this state of things continued until upon his wife attaining her majority he entered into possession of some property that belonged to her his regular conduct and his learning which had been rendered more solid by long and serious study caused him to be admitted into the protestant consistory there after an exemplary life he died and none but god ever knew whether it was one of hypocrisy or of penitence as for the marquis de ganges who had been sentenced as we have seen to banishment and the confiscation of his property he was conducted to the frontier of savoy and there set at liberty after having spent two or three years abroad so that the terrible catastrophe in which he had been concerned should have time to be hushed up he came back to france and as nobody madame de rossan being now dead was interested in prosecuting him he returned to his castle at ganges and remained there pretty well hidden monsieur de baville indeed the lieutenant of languedoc learned that the marquis had broken from his exile but he was told at the same time that the marquis as a zealous catholic was forcing his vassals to attend mass whatever their religion might be this was the period in which persons of the reformed church were being persecuted and the zeal of the marquis appeared to monsieur de baville to compensate and more than compensate for the peccadillo of which he had been accused consequently instead of prosecuting him he entered into secret communication with him reassuring him about his stay in france and urging on his religious zeal and in this manner twelve years passed by during this time the marquise's young son 
whom we saw at his mother's deathbed, had reached the age of twenty, and being rich in his father's possessions, which his uncle had restored to him, and also by his mother's inheritance, which he had shared with his sister, had married a girl of good family named Mademoiselle de Moissac, who was both rich and beautiful. Being called to serve in the royal army, the count brought his young wife to the castle of Gange, and having fervently commended her to his father, left her in his charge. The Marquis de Gange was forty-two years old, and scarcely seemed thirty. He was one of the handsomest men living. He fell in love with his daughter-in-law and hoped to win her love, and in order to promote this design, his first care was to separate from her, under the excuse of religion, a maid who had been with her from childhood, and to whom she was greatly attached. This measure, the cause of which the young Marquise did not know, distressed her extremely. It was much against her will that she had come to live at all in this old castle of Gange, which had so recently been the scene of the terrible story that we have just told. She inhabited the suite of rooms in which the murder had been committed. Her bedchamber was the same which had belonged to the late Marquise. Her bed was the same. The window by which she had fled was before her eyes, and everything— down to the smallest article of furniture, recalled to her the details of that savage tragedy. But even worse was her case when she found it no longer possible to doubt her father-in-law's intentions, when she saw herself beloved by one whose very name had again and again made her childhood turn pale with terror, and when she was left alone at all hours of the day in the sole company of the man whom public rumor still pursued as a murderer— Perhaps in any other place the poor lonely girl might have found some strength in trusting herself to God. But there, where God had suffered one of the fairest and purest creatures that ever existed to perish by so cruel a death, she dared not appeal to him, for he seemed to have turned away from this family. She waited, therefore, in growing terror, spending her days as much as she could with the women of rank who lived in the little town of Gange, and some of whom, eyewitnesses of her mother-in-law's murder, increased her terrors by the accounts which they gave of it, and which she, with the despairing obstinacy of fear, asked to hear again and again. As to her knights, she spent the greater part of them on her knees and fully dressed, trembling at the smallest sound, only breathing freely as daylight came back, and venturing to seek her bed for a few hours' rest. At last, the Marquis' attempts became so direct and so pressing that the poor young woman resolved to escape at all costs from his hands. Her first idea was to write to her father, explain to him her position, and ask help. But her father had not long been a Catholic, and had suffered much on behalf of the Reformed religion, and on these accounts it was clear that her letter would be opened by the Marquis on pretext of religion, and thus that step instead of saving, might destroy her. She had thus but one resource. Her husband had always been a Catholic. Her husband was a captain of dragoons, faithful in the service of the king and faithful in the service of God. There could be no excuse for opening a letter to him. She resolved to address herself to him, explain the position in which she found herself, got the address written by another hand, and sent the letter to Montpellier, where it was posted. The young Marquis was at Metz when he received his wife's missive. At that instant, all his childish memories awoke. 
he beheld himself at his dying mother's bedside vowing never to forget her and pray daily for her the image presented itself of this wife whom he adored in the same room exposed to the same violence destined perhaps to the same fate all this was enough to lead him to take positive action he flung himself into a post-chaise reached versailles begged an audience of the king cast himself with his wife's letter in his hand at the feet of louis the fourteenth and besought him to compel his father to return into exile where he swore upon his honor that he would send him everything he could need in order to live properly the king was not aware that the marquis de ganges had disobeyed the sentence of banishment and the manner in which he learned it was not such as to make him pardon the contradiction of his laws in consequence he immediately ordered that if the marquis de ganges were found in france he should be proceeded against with the utmost rigor happily for the marquis the comte de ganges the only one of his brothers who had remained in france and indeed in favor learned the king's decision in time he took post from versailles and making the greatest haste went to warn him of the danger that was threatening both together immediately left ganges and withdrew to avignon the district of venaissin which still belonging at that time to the pope and being governed by a vice-legate was considered as foreign territory there he found his daughter madame d'urban who did all she could to induce him to stay with her but to do so would have been to flout louis the fourteenth's orders too publicly and the marquis was afraid to remain so much in evidence lest evil should befall him he accordingly retired to the little village of lille built in a charming spot near the fountain of vaucluse there he was lost sight of none ever heard him spoken of again and when i myself travelled in the south of france in eighteen thirty five i sought in vain any trace of the obscure and forgotten death which closed so turbulent and stormy an existence as in speaking of the last adventures of the marquis de ganges we have mentioned the name of madame d'urban his daughter we cannot exempt ourselves from following her amid the strange events of her life scandalous though they may be such indeed was the fate of this family that it was to occupy the attention of france through well nigh a century either by its crimes or by its freaks on the death of the marquise her daughter who was barely six years old had remained in the charge of the dowager marquise de ganges who when she had attained her twelfth year presented to her as her husband the marquis de parent formerly a lover of the grandmother herself the marquis was seventy years of age having been born in the reign of henry the fourth he had seen the court of louis the thirteenth and that of louis the fourteenth's youth and he had remained one of its most elegant and favored nobles he had the manners of those two periods the politest that the world has known so that the young girl not knowing as yet the meaning of marriage and having seen no other man yielded without repugnance and thought herself happy in becoming the marquise de perron the marquis who was very rich had quarrelled with his younger brother and regarded him with such hatred that he was marrying only to deprive his brother of the inheritance that would rightfully accrue to him should the elder die childless unfortunately the marquis soon perceived that the step which he had taken however efficacious in the case of another man was likely to be fruitless in his own he did not however despair and waited two or three years hoping every day that heaven would work a miracle in his favour 
but as every day diminished, the chances of this miracle and his hatred for his brother grew with the impossibility of taking revenge upon him, he adopted a strange and altogether antique scheme and determined, like the ancient Spartans, to obtain by the help of another what heaven refused to himself. End of section 4 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia